Um, so a couple of weeks ago, um, I was playing golf with some new friends, and one of the guys that I met is a guy named Keith. And Keith um, and I just, just getting to know each other, and so now we're on like the 16th hole, so we've been together for you know, three hours or something now. But you know, when you play golf, you don't get a lot of conversation. Just, you know, you're a nice shot, you know, you go to the next thing, right? So now we're walking up to the 16th tee, and Keith says to me, you know, Larry, I've known this guy, you know, three hours. Larry, sometimes the Bible is hard to understand. And so in my mind, I saw how this was going to play out. You know, he's going to ask me a question like, so should we do unto others as we would have them do unto us? And I would say, yes. And then he would say, oh, praise God. Now I fully understand the Bible. It's so easy to understand the Bible, but no. Um, he was asking about Exodus 4.24. You happen to know this story? It's a doozy. Um, God has sent Moses to talk to Pharaoh. And on the way, Moses is traveling with his wife, Zipporah. And they stop at a hotel on the way to Egypt. And God decides that he's going to kill Moses. So Zipporah takes a flint knife and circumcises because this is circumcised. Is this, am I doing, does, is this circumcised? How's it look? There it is. <laughs> so you already learned something at church today, right? There it is. So she, she, she circumcises their son and she takes the bloody foreskin and touches Moses' feet with it and God decides not to kill him after all. And she says to Moses, today you have become a bridegroom of blood to me. The end. So, brings up a couple of questions. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> all of them. Like, what? Why did God want to kill Moses? And, 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 and what made Zipporah think that doing that would cool God down and make everything okay? It, why did that cool God down and make everything okay? And what the chicken is a bridegroom of blood. And what could this story mean? And how could this weird story possibly have anything to do with my life and if it doesn't have anything to do with my life why is it in the bible for me to read 4,000 years later so Keith and I didn't really get much of a chance that day um, to talk about that's not really a story that you get to the bottom of uh, in between shots um, but it really reminded me of just how weird and confusing the Bible can sometimes be. And it reminded me that we need to talk sometimes about how to read the Bible. Um, next week, we're actually going to go through this particular passage, and we're going to see that that passage actually does have huge relevance in our lives right now. And we're going to start looking at some ways to figure out some of these hard passages and what they mean to us here and now, but for today, just for today, now, can we agree, how many would agree 
that sometimes some parts of the Bible can be a little bit hard to understand. Oh, you I'm not the only. I mean, do you ever like do unto others as they would as you would have them do unto you? I'm fine with that, right? Thou shalt not steal. I'm golden on that. But do you ever read something like this and just like feel dumb? Like I mean, maybe everybody else gets it but me. Or do you ever feel like maybe it's just not worth? I'm never going to understand that. So maybe I just won't try. Maybe I'll skip that part. Maybe I'll skip that part. Um, and I'll tell you what a lot of people do is they just give up on the whole Bible. And I'm going to tell you that I think that's what Satan would love us to do. But God went to a lot of trouble to write this thing. And I don't think we should just throw out the hard parts. And I don't just think we should throw out the whole thing because there are hard parts. Maybe it deserves some digging, even when that digging is tough. So today is the easy part. Today we identify the problem, right? Can we just, let's start with this. Let's just give ourselves a little bit of a break. And let's just admit that the Bible's hard to understand. I mean, it was written thousands of years ago. The world has changed a little bit, you know? Um, some people think Job was the first Bible uh, book that was ever written. When the book of Job was written, gas was 99 cents a gallon. Can you imagine they were on like iPhone 3? I mean, it was a long, long, long time ago. And it was written by people that lived really different lives than us in a really different time, in a really different place, in a really different culture. And even now, in current times, that part of the world's culture is a lot different than our part of the world. Um, I was in um, Dubai, in the airport in Dubai, which is the nicest airport I've ever been in. I mean, the nicest airport you ever saw. But it was a lot different than our airports. Um, they have, um, they, the bathrooms are really different, but I won't go there. The, um, they have public prayer rooms in their airport. Can you imagine walking to San Antonio Airport and there's a public prayer room set aside? It's different. It's a different world. Um, I was traveling with a group of pastors and uh, one of us was a woman and so she and I were going like through the security thing. Security's, you know, big, big machine guns, the whole thing, right? And so we're coming through the different lines of security and we're feeding into one line. And so she and I are going, you know, like this. And like any American man, we came up at the same time. One of us had to go first. What did I do? Yeah, I, I do this, right? And this guard with a machine gun strapped on him comes running up. No, 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 no. I said, what, what, what? You know, don't, please don't kill me. You know, I, what? What? You first. You first. They didn't want the woman to go in front of the man. That's, that's a little different for us. And so this is not just written in a culture that's, that, 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 that's a long time ago. It's written in a culture that's completely different from ours. And it was written in a time when the world was a lot different than it was, than it is now. And also, you know, the English language didn't exist then. So we got a lot of really hard language issues. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, and I think I can prove it. Moses didn't speak English. You know, Isaiah did not speak English. You know that? Paul did not speak English. Peter did not speak English. And so we got everything they wrote now has to be translated for us to understand. And translation is hard. And if you don't believe me, check your email because you got a spam this morning. Right, from somebody selling you something that was obviously written in another language and translated by Google Translate or whatever, 
right? And you look at it and you say, you know, the translation is accurate, but it doesn't sound right. You know what I'm talking about? Like it doesn't, it doesn't convey what it's, so, it's, it's probably the word for word, it's probably right, but it doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't mean what they th think it, it meant, you know? Um, Coors did an ad campaign years ago for Coors Light. Any beer drinkers? Don't, 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 don't tell me. Okay, so, so <laughs> la, la, la. any beer drinkers in the house? Okay, okay, so they did this ad, it was for, uh, it was for Coors Light, and you may remember this ad campaign, Turn It Loose. Remember that? That's what it was. And so all their ads were the same. It was a bunch of really great-looking people, all very young and very fit, and they were at these amazing beaches and mountains and all that, and they would crack open a can of Coors Light, and they would go, turn it loose. <laughs> and people rushed to the store to buy this beer, and it was a great advertising campaign until it went to Spain. Because when they went to Spain, they translated turn it loose word for word, but there's a little different meaning. And so what the people in Spain heard was all these beautiful people on mountaintops and beaches, and they're dressed really cool, and they would open their and get diarrhea. <laughs> because turn it loose, apparently, word for word, you know, doesn't mean, mean something different for them than it does for us. And it's not just the little sayings and little expressions. Listen, every word in every language has what we call a semantic range. That means every word has multiple meanings. Every word can mean more than one thing. I'll give you a great example of this, the word run. What, is, what does that word mean? It means to, what? To ambulate quickly, right? To, 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 go, <laughs> to go by foot someplace fast. That's what, it mean, that's what it means to run. But you know, I could run to the store in a car, right? I, I mean, paint can run. Your refrigerator can run. Your nose can run. You can run for office. You, you can run a company. Your computer runs software. A company can run a profit. You can run cattle. You can run up a tab. You can run a fever. You can run a bath. You can run copies. Sometimes a sermon will run too long. <laughs> I saw an online dictionary. It found 645 meanings for the word run. So translation is hard, right? We've got to use context and all these tricks to try to figure out what the original author meant because all of these ideas that we're trying to get have to go from God not sure what his native language is, right? And it's got to go now to Moses in Hebrew or to Paul in Greek, and then it's got to be translated. And you know, some of our translations use the Septuagint, which was actually the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek, and now we're going to translate it into English. And it's got to go through translators, and those translators have different objectives. That's why we have all these different translations of the Bible that are just a little bit different from each other. Each one of those translators has like a different agenda. So like some, some translations, their goal, word for word, baby, accurate, 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 word for word. We don't care if it makes sense. It's word for word. Accuracy is their premium, most important thing. And then other translations are really more interested in making it easy for you to understand in your context. So it may, they may sacrifice a little of the word for word accuracy. Let me give you a great example of this. Uh, Genesis 24, 2. This is the New American Standard Bible. Uh, Matt, do we have that? There it is. Abraham said to his servant, place your hand under my thigh. 
Anybody? Place your hand under my thigh. I read that and it's like, what? I mean, my grandpa used to say, pull my finger. And I don't know. I don't think it's, I don't think it's related to that. But like, what is, what could that, place your hand under my thigh. And you know what it meant? That was like a pinky swear, right? That was like, let's shake on it. Right? You're, we're making an agreement right now. Put your, once somebody's put their hand under your thigh, I mean, they're telling you the truth and our, and our agreement is good. So the New American Standard, they want word for word accuracy. That's what it says. Look what the New Living Translation says. Same words in Hebrew, but they translate it like this. Abraham said to his servant, take an oath by putting your hand under my thigh. So we have these different translations that are trying to, do, translation, translation is hard. And a lot of people ask me, like, what's the best translation, right? There's lots of translations. What's the best translation? I'm going to tell you for me, I'm a simple person. I use a simple one, right? I, I like the New Living Translation or NIV or something like that. I'll even use a paraphrase, like the message, because they're easy for me to understand. But when I want to really dig and when it's really confusing and it's really hard, then I'll take lots of translations, take four, five, six translations and look at them side by side. What does this person say? 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 And from all of that, it kind of helps me understand what it's trying to mean. Language is hard. And plus, even within a language, languages change over time, right? That's why I don't read King James. It's, it's, oh, it's like reading Shakespeare, right? And, and, and it's English, it's English, but it doesn't make sense to me. I don't use those words. Those words don't. Um, how many of you this week have used the word bedward? <coughs> Nobody. It's like onward or homeward. Right? At night, oh, I'm really tired. That's it. I'm bedward. That's what it means. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an English word. It's a real word. How many of you feel crapulous right now? Anybody <laughs> crapulous? It's like, that's like, you know that means like I ate too much, I drank too much, and now I'm sick. That's, that's, it's, it's a real word, but we don't use that word anymore, right? Languages are, are dynamic. Languages are changing all of the time. Um, I'll just, I'll, su I'll suggest that the word gay means something different to you than it did to your great-great-grandparents. I will suggest that the word mouse might mean something different to you than it did to your great-great-grandparents. I will suggest that the word stream might mean something different to you than it did to your parents right? The word screen. How about screen, right? My kids are all worried about their kids having too much screen time. You know, a screen was a door for me, right? So the words, it's hard. And, and Hebrew has changed over thousands of years. Greek has changed over thousands of years. Aramaic, almost nobody even speaks Aramaic anymore. So part of the reason understanding the Bible is so hard is is because translation is so hard from other languages, especially in other times, and especially in other cultures. But the biggest translation issue is not gaps in time and culture and language between like Paul and us. It's the gap between Paul and God. Right? Because we believe that the Bible was inspired by God to be written through people. And so that means that God had to convey his thoughts to them. And God is not a simple thinker. Right? Here's Isaiah 55.8. God says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. Right? My, my ways are far beyond anything you can even imagine. And yet that's what he's trying to do with the Bible. 
And if, I mean, if you think about how differently you talk to an adult than you talk to a three-year-old, right? So when you, you know, God's trying, imagine trying to convey a grown-up thought to a child that just can't get it. They just, I mean, so what do you do? You lie, right? Right? I don't think you're really ready for this concept yet, so let me tell you what happened. Rover went to live on a farm. Right? Dad, why do I have to hold your, why do you hold my hand so tight when we're in this part of town? Because I love you. How about ice cream? Right? It's like they can't, you know, there is a true answer, and you know the true answer, but they can't handle the true answer. So you have to kind of dumb it down for them. And I just, I'm, imagine, imagine God trying to take his complex ideas and thoughts and put them into language that Moses could understand, that Paul could understand, that Isaiah could understand. And then after that, they have to write it down. And then it goes through their filters, right? Because they've got their personalities and they've got their background and they got their stuff. So they see things a little different. This is why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saw the same thing. They wrote it down four kind of different ways because it's going through them. And then from there, we have to start with all the crazy translation stuff. So God, God communicating with us is hard. Some, we're trying to understand God's thoughts through different languages and through changing languages and through, through different cultures and different times and translation stuff. And so, I don't know what to tell you, man. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. But, Maybe it's okay that it's hard. In fact, I think it might be hard on purpose. Because the Bible's not a magazine article, you know, that you just flip through and it forces, it just like dumps the facts on you. You know, it just dumps everything. That's not, that's not, that's not what it is. The Bible is, is meditation literature, right? It, you don't read a cookbook the way you read an encyclopedia, agree? You don't read your grocery list the same way that you read your uh, instructions on your medicine, right? You read different things different ways. The Bible is meditation literature. It was designed to be read and reread and reread and prayed over and thought about and discussed and debated and kicked around and then read again and then reread. That's, it's, it's made for you to spend your whole life thinking about it, reading it, rereading it, talking about it, praying about it. And this is why we... Maybe God put these gaps in there on purpose so we wouldn't skim through it, right? Maybe, maybe he put these things in purpose so that we would read it and reread it and talk about it even when the digging is tough. So here's an example. Genesis 4, you know the story. Cain and Abel both bring offerings to God. Cain is a farmer. He brings fruits and vegetables. Abel is a rancher. He brings a sacrifice of an animal. God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but he doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice. And the Bible does not say why. It does not say why. It just says he took this sacrifice, he rejected that sacrifice, and it doesn't tell us why. And so people have come up with all these theories and ideas and discussions and stuff. Well, like, well, maybe Cain didn't follow some instructions. Maybe God gave him instructions, but we don't see the instructions, and he didn't follow the instructions. Maybe that's why. Maybe. Maybe it has something to do with blood. 
because we find out later in the Bible that there can be no forgiveness of sin without, without shedding of blood. So maybe it has something to do with blood, maybe. Um, also, maybe um, Abel brought, it says, the first portions, his best meat for a sacrifice. And it says Cain brought some fruits and vegetables. Maybe Cain was giving him second best. Maybe God looks on the heart. Maybe God knew that Abel was sincere and Cain wasn't. Maybe. Maybe God just likes meat better than vegetables. <laughs> I do. Amen. Amen. Praise God. That's it. I mean, the point is, all of those ideas could promote good, helpful study and conversation about what that passage means. I've read that passage a dozen times this week. And now hundreds of people have thought about what God could be trying to tell us through that passage. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, maybe, maybe it's okay that it's hard. Maybe it's intentional that it's hard. Maybe it's good that it's hard. Actually, maybe a better question is not, is it hard? Maybe a better question is, is it worth it? Like, should we, should we even try to work through all these issues with translation and culture and try to understand all the weird stuff? I mean, if I'm reading an article, if I'm reading a news article on my phone, and okay, here I come to this article, and it's like, I don't really understand this. I don't know who these people are. This doesn't make sense to me. You know what I do? Right? Boom. I'm on to the next thing, man. I'm, I'm, it's not worth it. It's this, it's this, this doesn't mean that much to me. Like, that story's not worth the trouble, right? But if this, if this really is God's word to us, if that's true, if, if this is real, I want you to look really quickly at some of the claims. That, well, let's decide if it's worth it, okay? Look at the claims the Bible makes about itself. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, Scripture gives us wisdom to receive salvation. That's kind of important, right? Matthew 4.4, 4, Jesus says that we live by God's word. John 5.39 says the word gives eternal life by pointing us to Jesus. Romans 1.1 says it has the power of God to save us. 1 Peter 1.23 says eternal life comes from God's word. Romans 10.17 says it gives us faith. We're saved by faith. The Bible says it's impossible to please God without faith. Uh, Proverbs 4.22 says his word brings healing to our bodies. John 17 says the word sanctifies us and it makes us more like Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.16 says the Bible teaches us how to live the best possible life, like a cheat sheet from God about what's right and what's wrong and how to live. It equips, equips us to fulfill our purpose. The Bible claims to have the answers to life and death and faith and goodness and purpose and, and knowing God and living forever. And if all that is true, if, if that's real, then it's, it's worth any amount of effort, right? Then it doesn't matter how hard it is if that stuff is true. So I would like to make the argument that it is true and that it is real and that it is credible and it's believable and it's trustworthy. And so let's start with some not very spiritual soundings, just some really practical stuff. Um, is the Bible credible? Um, it's the best-selling book in history. Over five billion copies the Bible have sold more than Harry Potter. <laughs> and some people would have you think that, yeah, that was a long time ago, but the Bible has lost its relevance now. Nobody cares what the Bible has to say now. Nobody cares about what the Bible has to say in this day, in this age, in our time. But the truth is that the Bible is being printed and sold faster and more than ever right now. 
Um, right now, about 20 million people buy a Bible every year. Every 10 seconds, 6.4 people buy a Bible. Every 1.4 seconds, a Bible is sold somewhere in the world. And I think it's because deep down, people know that we need God. And I think there's something in us that's telling us that the best way to know God is through his word. And the more we dig into his word, the more we're gonna find him. It's the most popular book in history. It's the most read book in the world. It's also the most verified ancient book in history, historically and archeologically. There's more empirical support for the Bible being true and right. And, and there's a shorter time between the original writings and the surviving copies. You know what I mean by that? There's, and there's, there's, more, there's more proof manuscripts. There's more copies of it that we can compare. So when historians, they find this old document, right? Is it legit? They mostly ask these two questions. One, do we have anything to compare it to? Like if I've got multiple copies of the same thing, then I can say, well, this one says this, this one says this, this one says this, this one says that. So this one doesn't belong, right? And so that's how they proof it. That's how they find out if it's legit. The second thing is just how much time elapsed from the original writing to those copies came out. So imagine this, if I tell you something right now and you tell someone and they tell someone and they tell someone and they tell someone and a thousand years from now, somebody writes it down, what are the odds that what they write down is exactly what I said? Remember the telephone game, right? There's no way, right? It loses a lot, it loses a lot of credibility when we go a long time from the original work to the first copies being made. So here's a great example. Um, the works of Julius Caesar. Almost everybody agrees that that is a super reliable document. You know why? We have 251 copies of it. So we can compare it to itself and we can see what's true and what's not and what belongs in there and what doesn't. But the first copy was produced 950 years after the original. But that's still considered very reliable historically. Uh, there's a great historian, a Greek guy, Herodotus. And we t they call him the father of history. That's how much we trust his writing. But the earliest copies of his stuff came 1,400 years after he wrote it. But you know why we say it's reliable? Because we got 109 copies. So we got a lot of stuff to kind of compare with. How many of you know Homer Simpson? Yeah, okay. So, so, uh, so Greek philosopher, poet, right? So we have 1,800 copies of like the Iliad and the Odyssey. 1,800 copies of that stuff so we can compare so we're we're sure that's really what he said because we have so many copies of it but for the new testament historians matthew mark luke john we don't have 109 copies or 250 copies or 1800 copies we have 5,000 copies and the time that elapsed from the original thing happening till it was written down wasn't 950 years and it wasn't 1,400 years, it's like 200 years. Some of those were within 100 years. Some of them were by the actual eyewitnesses are the ones that actually wrote it down. So just practically, academically, the Bible is the most credible, verifiable, believable ancient text in the world. So that's not it, how else, how else can we verify that it's real? Like, how, how can we know? It, it's hard to prove the thing about living forever, right? So that we can't do that one. But like, we could look at how, what results has it produced? You want to know if it's real? Did it work, right? I think, I think we can say this. Practically, we can prove that the truth of this book and the spirit behind it has built more hospitals and loved more orphans.
and fed more hungry people and transformed more lives than any book in history. This is why you can, you can name lots of hospitals and orphanages and charitable organizations that have Christian names. Methodist Hospital, Baptist Hospital, my kids were born in Presbyterian Hospital. St. Jude's Hospital is a free kids hospital for kids with cancer. Um, but the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, Samaritan's Purse, and these are Christian organizations and all the good done by those organizations is grounded in the truth and the calling of one man Jesus and one book the Bible so we talk about this stuff all day there's a lot of really good very academic reasons to read believe that the Bible is real up here but I think the real question at the end of the day is is it going to go from here to here you know is Like, I know it, but I have to decide if I believe it, right? I can prove it to you. We can prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it. But at the end of the day, regardless of how much proof we have to have, there's a spiritual component to faith, right? The Bible says in John 6, 44, that nobody comes to Jesus unless they're drawn by the Spirit of God. Nobody's been argued into heaven, right? Faith is not just an intellectual exercise, Faith is knowing in your spirit. Faith is knowing in your soul. This is from God. And it's believing that God has chosen to communicate with you. God has chosen to communicate with you through his word. And believing that he's able to accomplish that in spite of time, in spite of culture, in spite of, trans- in spite of translation and language issues. Isaiah 55, 17 says, this word always accomplishes its work. It's, it requires faith for me to believe that. Luke 1.37 says, God's word will never fail. Jesus said in Matthew 19.26, God, with God nothing is impossible. Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, if you believe that the Bible is real, if it does all of those things that it says it does, then it's absolutely worth it. It's absolutely amazing to dig out truth and life out of a book that God wrote for you. But sometimes it's not easy. And, and especially when the digging is tough, man, when it's hard and when it's, when it's weird. And it's never been easy. It's never been easy. You know, 2,000 years ago, the Bible tells us in Matthew 13 that Jesus always spoke in parables. Right, so he'd, use, he'd tell these stories, he'd give these illustrations, and then, and then and it, it took some digging, you know, to understand what he was talking about. And it's really cool because, like, he would tell he'd big groups of people, and Jesus would tell the parable, and then people would be going like, wait, what? And then they would walk off, and he would turn to his disciples, and he would say, let me tell you what that meant. Right, he would go into further detail with them. So the casual followers, they could learn something, you know, and they might see a miracle or something like that, but they would never know Jesus, the way his disciples did, because they were coming early to the sermons. They were sticking around afterwards for the Q&A. They were spending time with him. They were, they were debating. They were discussing. They were digging. And the reward for that digging was revelation. The reward for that digging was really seeing who Jesus was, hearing from God, really knowing God. And I'm going to tell you, a lot of people didn't go with it. 
a lot of people, like, they were following Jesus. They loved Jesus when it was miracle this and saving that. And all. They loved it when blind people were seeing and crippled people were walking. But they bailed when the, when the teaching got weird. And here's a great example of that. This is in John 6, 47. I'll ask you this. Consider that you've never been to a Christian church and you've never heard about this whole communion idea, okay? All you, you're a Jew 2,000 years ago. This guy just raised somebody from the dead. Let's hear what he has to say, right? And so he's talking along, and listen, listen how this teaching just gets harder and weirder as Jesus goes. He says, I tell you the truth, anybody that believes has eternal life. Sweet. That sounds good. Yes, I'm the bread of life. Okay. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. But anybody who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Uh... Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. So now it's getting weird, right? This bread, which I will offer so that the world may live, is my flesh. And now thousands of people in unison said, wait, what? Right? What? what? Then the people, it says that. Then the people around him began arguing with each other about what it meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They asked. So Jesus said again, I'll tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life. But anybody that eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise that person on the last day. How weird is that? How confusing is that? How hard is that to understand? In fact, look at verse 66. At this point, many of his disciples uh, turned away, and they deserted him. And it's like, that's just too hard. That's just too weird. I, I don't, I, I'm out, I'm out. And so verse 67, then Jesus turned to the twelve. So it seems like he was talking to hundreds of people and like one by one, they're all going like, that's it for me. And they're walking off as it got harder and harder as the digging got tougher and tougher. So now he turns to the 12, who I think are maybe the only ones left. And he says, are you also gonna leave? But Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? Like, where else will we turn? You have the words to give eternal life. And we believe and we know that you're the Holy One of God. Jesus claims about who he was and, and, and this hard teaching, it drew lines in the sand then just like it does now. It divided people just like it does now. Some people liked Jesus when it was all miracles and fun teaching and free fish sandwiches, but then when it came right down to it, they didn't trust Jesus enough to keep trusting and keep digging when the digging was hard and when the word was hard. But Peter and the 12, probably because they had been around him for the extra Q&A after, probably because they had heard his teaching, they had showed up early, they had been with him, they had heard it over and over, they had stuck with it, they, they saw and believed that Jesus was God. And I'm gonna tell you, I don't think they understood the flesh and blood thing right then because he explains it to them the day he was betrayed. This was way before that. So I don't think they understood it. He said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. I don't think they all went, oh yeah, we know what that's talking about. They didn't understand it any better than the other people did. But for some reason, they said, look, even though we don't completely get this teaching, even though this sounds weird to us, even though this is really hard for us, we see that you're God and our faith is in you and we believe in you. So we're gonna follow you and we're gonna listen to you and we're gonna stay with you and trust you and hold on to your words because these are the words that give eternal life. They said, this is, this is tough digging. 
but we'll keep digging. It's hard, but it's worth it. So today we're going to take communion, the Lord's Supper. And I'll just tell you that you don't have to be a member of our church to take communion with us. Um, Even if it's your first time here, we would love for you to, to take communion with us. Celebrating communion is celebrating what Jesus means for us and what Jesus has done for us and this gift that he's given us of new life and better life and eternal life. And so before we do that, the Bible says we should all examine ourselves. And so I just want to say, if you haven't accepted that gift before, maybe today's your day. You know, maybe you're like Peter and the 12, and you would say, you know what, I don't understand it all. I don't, I don't understand it all. But I've read some of it. You know, I've heard some stuff about Jesus, and I realize I want a relationship with him. I realize that I don't deserve a relationship with him. I, I want to start a relationship with God. I want to know God better. Or maybe you're just tired of trying to do so much good or so little bad that you can be called a good person so that you can connect with God. Maybe, maybe you're like Peter. Maybe you're ready to make that same proclamation and say, Jesus, if I really want eternal life, if I want new life, if I want better life, if I want eternal life, where else would I turn? And you can make that decision today. I want to give you this. You can make that decision today without fully understanding the Bible. I'll prove it to you. How many of you in this room right now would say for sure you're saved, Christians, you know Jesus, you're spending forever with him? Keep your hands up. How many of you with your hands up right now would say you fully understand every single word of the Bible? (laughs) Right? Like, becoming a Christian, following Jesus is saying, I may not understand it all, but... I believe in you. I believe in your power to forgive my sin, right? to overcome death for me, to give me eternal life. I believe, and I trust that, and I believe that so much that I'm gonna make you, we call it making him Lord of our life, which just means I'm gonna follow you. You're the boss, right? You're gonna empower me, show me how to live, and give me the power through your spirit to live that way. So becoming a Christian doesn't mean having a complete understanding of every word of the Bible. It means saying, Jesus, I believe in you, and I want to make you Lord. I want to start following you. So let me give you a verse that you can understand. It's Romans 10, 9. It says, if you openly declare, if you just say, if you mean it so much that it comes out of your mouth to say, Jesus is Lord, I'm going to follow him. And if you believe in your heart, if you really believe that God raised him from the dead, that he is who he says he is, then you will be saved. Not when you understand it all. Not when it all makes sense. Not when you can explain a bridegroom of blood, right? When I just say, I believe in him, and I believe in him so much I want to follow him, that's salvation. That's it. And then from there we grow, and from there we learn. And then you join everybody else in this room and every other Christian on earth saying, I I believe, and now I'm trying to understand even more fully. So if you're ready to do that, instead of waiting until you fully understand it, let's do it now. Yep, let's just say it now. I'm just, I I believe in him so much that I'm gonna follow him. And he's, I'm making him Lord of my life starting today. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna say a really simple prayer with you that will not save you, right? The words don't save you. What saves you? Believing. Calling him Lord. 
right? But we're just going to say these words together as a prayer, saying, I'm starting that now. And if you're already a believer, just say it with us, and that'll encourage other people around you. And if you've never really made this commitment that you really want Jesus to be Lord of your life, if you've never really said out loud, I really believe in him, this is for me, let's do it now. Here's all you got to do. Just pray like this. Just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I'm sorry. Today I become a Christian. I'm choosing to follow you. I believe in you as my risen Savior. And I'm asking you to be my Lord. So fill me with your spirit. Teach me from your word. Help me to be more like Jesus every day. Thank you for my salvation. In Jesus' name. Okay, look, if you did that today, and this is a big deal, man. This is a really, really big deal. I want to talk to you some more about it. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. When you go back to the Connection Center, Lauren will be back there. When you go back to the Connection Center, just tell them, hey, today I decided to follow Jesus. And they'll have you check a little box on a card. They'll give you a Bible that you can read. They'll give you a Bible that you can understand in a language that you've heard before. And you'll be able to start understanding the Bible more. I'll call you this week, see what questions you have, and let's start walking this thing out together. Today's the important step. It's the first step. But the next steps are we grow in understanding Jesus and how to follow him. And one of the ways that we follow him is a communion. This is this thing we do where we reenact the Last Supper of Jesus. And it's where, like, as best as we can understand it, we take in the truth of Jesus, right? As best as we can understand it, we, we remember his sacrifice and, we, and we, we thank him for giving his life so that we could have life. And the night of that first Lord's Supper, one of the things they did was they sang a song together. So we're gonna sing a song together first. And I'll ask you as we're singing this song, think about the words of this song. Think about what this Lord's Supper means. Think about what Jesus did. And let's sing this song together. <laughs>